The rock who gave us birth is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Holy One, may she be praised, and from my enemies I shall be saved. The snares of death encompassed me, the rivers of wickedness assailed me, the snares of shale encircled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon she who hears. To my God, I cried for help. From her temple, she heard my voice, and my cry came before her to her ears. Then the earth shuddered and quaked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and were shaken because of her anger. Smoke went up from her nostrils and consuming fire from her mouth. Burning coals blazed forth from her. She spread out the heavens and descended. Thick darkness was under her feet. She mounted up on a cherub and flew. She soared upon the wings of the wind. She made darkness her veil around her, her canopy, dark waters, and thick clouds. She reached down from on high. She took me. She drew me out of the multitude of water. She delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hate me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, yet the sheltering God was my support. She brought me out into a broad place. She delivered me because she delights in me. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And look, there was a great earthquake, for a messenger of God descending from heaven came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Its appearance was like lightning and its clothing white as snow. For fear of the messenger, the guards shook and were as though dead. But the messenger responded to the women and said, Fear not, I know that you all are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead, and see, he is on to Galilee ahead of you. There you, will, you all will see him. This is my message for you. So the women left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples the news. Then all of a sudden, Jesus met them and said, Shalom. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and bowed down, worshiping him. Then Jesus said to them, Fear not. Go and tell my sisters and brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me.
Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you, too. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to each and every one of you. He is risen. Hallelujah. He is risen. Hallelujah. Now, we have been immersing ourselves in the story of Jesus, and we do this at all times. That's part of our work together as a community of spirituality is to immerse ourselves in the stories of God and the stories of the people of God. But it all gets really intense in Lent and as we approach the cross, right? So we kicked off uh, the last week of Jesus's life before his death and resurrection on Sunday last week with Protest Sunday. You can still see all of our signs and banners from when we celebrated, when we pushed back, when we fought for justice alongside Jesus and his followers as they rode into Jerusalem, kicking off that last week of Jesus's life. Pro protest Sunday becomes table flipping, becomes the Last Supper, becomes the Garden of Gethsemane, becomes the cross, and then the resurrection. And you've got to admit that while there is a lot going on all year, this last week is pretty plot heavy. There's like a lot going on. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this last week of Jesus's life. And, and we do this every spring. Every spring we encounter it's wild to me the ways that the weather does and does not align with our storytelling. But today, it is perfect, right? Today here in Milwaukee, last week, was it last week we had a blizzard? It's very surreal out here. So we were buried in snow as we were head-to-head -head confronting the empire, feeling like the death that is symbolized by winter would never end. And yet here we are today with Easter Lily, Easter Lily in tow. Thank you, Peggy. And it's 50-some degrees out, and the sun is shining, and we remember spring is real. It's not just a story we tell ourselves. But we do revisit this story every spring. We do have to tell it to ourselves over and over again. Because though God is the God who remembers, we are the people who forget. And so we are given stories to tell and tell and tell and tell. Now, uh, as some of you know, I am a parent. Cameron and I have an almost not quite two-year-old uh, who is doing a lot of story demanding these days. We are reading the stories over and over and over and over and over and over again. And one of her favorite stories was one of my favorite stories as a child. It's called The Monster at the End of This Book. Some of you know it. I love this book. I have loved this book from childhood. Maybe part of it was the way that my mom used to read it to me in her Grover voice. But it's also this incredible meta story because it's called The Monster at the end of this book and on the first page, the, the primary character Grover says, what did that say? Because he is talking to you about the book you're reading. And all throughout, he begs you, please do not turn the page. Because he's afraid of the monster at the end of the book. And as a child, this delighted me so much. Because in addition to my mom's great voice, 
and the joy that is Grover, and the delight at turning a page that had been uh, covered with fake bricks and Grover telling me how strong I was. It was also my first lesson in what it meant to have a story be an exchange. That a story wasn't a static, isolated thing that existed outside of me. A story was an interaction. Someone had told this story, and I was receiving it. But this story could only advance through my ongoing participation. If I heeded Grover's calls and did not turn the page as he requested, the story would be over. And I knew from reading the story over and over again that in the end, everything would be okay because it turns out the monster at the end of this book was Grover himself. He had simply forgotten he was a lovable furry monster and everything was fine. And so we moved through that narrative over and over again, the fear, the anticipation, the pleading, the resolution, the memory of the self. And we moved through that over and over again. And even though I always knew that it was Grover at the end of that book, I didn't skip to the end. I had to move page through page with him over and over again. Storytelling is participatory. Storytelling changes us. Storytelling advances a narrative. And it exists in our collective imagination, but it comes alive when we tell it out loud and to one another. It is shaped by the way we read it and the way we hear it and the way that we interpret it. And so, I invite you to consider what the story of Jesus' life, teachings, confrontation with empire, death on the cross as a public execution, and resurrection into new life. What does this story mean to you today, right here, right now, in this community, in this moment? What does it mean to enter into this story? Now, Jesus was a storyteller. It's actually one of the most annoying things about him. People would ask him questions constantly, and he would tell them a story. If he did ever give them a straightforward answer, he'd tell them a story anyway, and it would make it more confusing. But Jesus told stories, also often called parables, because they could carry layers and layers of meaning. They were moments, they were narratives that you could enter into, multitudes contained in a beginning, middle, and end. The stories change their shape every time we encounter them, so much more multidimensional than a mere statement of fact or opinion. The layers of meanings in story is part of what gives them power. Another favorite story from my childhood was the book, Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears. It's a West African fable, and in it, a mosquito tells a tall tale to an iguana who is having none of it and is really annoyed. And because of this exaggeration, the iguana's like, I am not hearing your nonsense today. And the iguana sticks sticks in his ears, puts sticks in his ears so as to block the annoying noise of the mosquito. But another creature calls out to the iguana who doesn't respond because he can't hear. And that creature is, is worried 
Maybe the iguana is mad at me. Maybe the iguana is plotting against me. I need to hide. And so it darts into a hole in the ground, frightening the rabbit who is in the hole in the ground, who runs away, fearing that they are under attack. It goes on and on with people panicking and misinterpreting one another's behaviors until there is an accident and a baby owl dies. The whole of the community gathers and tries to trace back, and they trace it all the way back to the mosquito and her annoying tall tail. And so they blame her for the death of this baby owl. And the story ends by concluding that the mosquito is always buzzing around in people's ears because she's trying to figure out if people are still mad at her. And when they swat her away, she gets an honest answer. Now, on its face, this story asks the question and answers it. Why does a mosquito buzz in people's ears? But this story is about so much more. It's about searching for blame in the face of tragedy. It's about cause and effect. It's about how we impact one another with our behaviors and also how the assumptions we make about other people's motives not only may be wrong, but have consequences in and of themselves. A story answers many whys, along with what does this mean? We make meaning not primarily through facts and figures. This is a fantasy we tell ourselves in the Western world. It is a post-enlightenment obsession with getting things correct, when actually meaning has to be so much more layered than any particular fact can provide. Meaning for human beings Meaning in culture comes from story, from narrative. Now, in light of our re-examination of the story of Jesus in a historical critical lens, in light of our deconstruction of substitutionary atonement, the idea that God is out for blood, in light of our orienting Jesus in the political sphere of his day, confronting empire with protest and solidarity. We have a question, an unanswered why. What then is the meaning of the cross? Can we still make meaning of the cross once we have started to deconstruct some of the pieces that surround the story we've told lately as a culture? And I would follow those questions with more. What is the meaning of Genesis? What is the meaning of all scripture? One of my favorite teachers in our modern era, Rachel Held Evans, wrote a whole book premised on her love for scripture, beginning with the idea that scripture might be a lot easier to understand if it began with the phrase, once upon a time. Now, eternity is long. Eternity is infinite, and human beings are finite. While God can occupy all time and space, while God has been to the beginning of the story and the end and back again, we are stuck in our particularity, in a moment of what it means to be alive, in a world that is at once alive with beauty and suffering under the weight of death in every moment. 
We need stories to help orient us to the infinite. And we need our God to meet us in the present. And that is what a narrative provides. A timeline, a path to understanding. Now, most peoples across history understand truth as encompassing more than facts. A story can be true without being factual. A factual story can be technically true, but told in a way that obscures the truth. And then, and then, there are the stories that hold history and truth and fact and mythology all at once in overlapping glory. And this is what I love about scripture. Scripture is the story of God's love for humanity that breaks into observable recorded history but it also breaks the laws of physics. It moves from historical records to op-eds and poetry and back. It tells the truth through facts and myths all at once. And at the cross, we have this conjunction, this historical moment of which we have records. The indisputable facts of our understanding of history coming up against mythology and a deeper understanding, a narrative of what God is doing across all of eternity. Now, if you'd like to revisit the facts of the case, did the physical resurrection happen? Happen? Is that a fact? Personally, I believe that it did. I believe that it did happen. I believe that Jesus physically, bodily raised from the dead. There was a time that I didn't. I was a faithful follower of Jesus then, and I genuinely believe it now. I am a faithful follower of Jesus now, which is to say, wherever you land on the facts of the resurrection, our goal together is to pursue the truth of it. Now, to answer what is the truth of the cross, we have to look at more than the facts, the facts of the public execution of Jesus of Nazareth at the hands of the empire's police force. We have to look beyond the empty tomb and the reports of Jesus' missing body. We have to look for the myth. And for 2,000 years, people have been telling stories about the story of that day. And we call these types of stories, stories of atonement. Now, atonement is a word that has been thrown around to mean a whole lot, but I want you to encounter it for the first time today, either for the first time or newly, as if for the first time. Atonement, if you break up that word, is literally at one mint. At one mint. It's just a different way of saying reconciliation. Things that have been torn from one another, rended from one another, are brought back into oneness, into wholeness. And so, with this very word, we have agreed over the last 2,000 years that whatever is happening in this story, its goal is bringing us back into oneness with the divine. Bring all of creation back into oneness with the divine. And so we know what the stakes are, that there is a wound, there is a fracture, there is a distance that has been created between us and our creator. And we long to be healed back together, to be made at one again. 
And something happens on that cross. Something happens in the death and resurrection of Jesus that brings us back to being at one with God again. Now, there are some popular stories that give meaning to the cross, that help us arrive at that at one with God. One story that's gotten very popular over the last few hundred years is that of a powerful and strict Father God. This Father God requires obedience in order to be at one. And when rules are broken, this God, this Father, is disrespected. His honor has been wounded. And in order to repair the honor, to offer respect, and to become in harmony again, a blood sacrifice is required as punishment and a display of renewed obedience. Humanity is so disobedient to Father God that it would require the bloodshed of each and every individual to restore God's honor, to satisfy the need for punishment. And so God, in benevolence, sends Jesus to receive the full weight of that punishment for all humanity. And the bloodshed of Jesus restores the hierarchy and the honor of God the Father. God's vengeance is satisfied. This is the penal substitutionary atonement theory. The punishment that was substituted. Essentially, Jesus becomes humanity's whipping boy. We've begun to realize that there are some problems with this story. We've begun to confront the ways that our current wounds in our community and our culture have crept into this story and twisted its meaning. We've begun to understand that the punishment of our world has been overlaid onto God, that this idea that violence is, is somehow restorative, the lie that, that coercion is the goal, that obedience means behavior, not restoration of right relationship. This is a story about compliance. This is a story about God's ego. This is a story about hierarchy. This is a story about prison. This is a story about offering our bodies as punishment for our disobedience. Now here at Zao, there's a lot that we reject in that narrative. We are abolitionists. We believe in the reconciliation of all things to God. We believe that happens through transformation, through active healing, and that punishment does not heal. We believe that punishment actually serves the status quo, serves the hierarchy, serves systems of oppression, and that we break and break and break ourselves trying to make things better when in fact what we need to do is stop breaking and start healing. That accountability comes through connection, not disconnection. That at one can be accomplished, not through pain and extraction, isolation and banishment being cast away for now, for five to seven years or for eternity. We reject that as a path to reconciliation. We believe that God is entering into history 
And when we contrast that narrative that we have seemed to accept as a community, as a culture, about what the meaning of the cross is, we have to reconcile it with scripture. The scripture of the people who forget and the God who remembers over and over and over and invites back. The God who says that righteousness is not about being right or even behaving rightly in the strictest sense, but is about right relationship. The God who comes into the earth over and over to heal. I mean, looking at the teachings of Jesus, is the number one vibe you get from Jesus compliance? Like, Jesus was about a lot of things, but compliance to authority, obedience to honor and hierarchy, this is not what we see in his life or his teaching. So why are we overlaying that on his death? In fact, he was crucified for refusing to submit to destructive hierarchies, for refusing to honor those who simply happened to be most dominant. How do we get a dominant father God demanding an extraction of violence toward compliance from the Jesus who stood at the gates of Jerusalem and said, I do not recognize your king. I will be put to death before I participate in this war machine. How did we get here? Well, in our process of deconstructing and saying, hey, this doesn't make sense. We can find ourselves left in the rubble and looking around and saying, how did I get here? Does any of this mean anything at all? And we have practiced as a community making new meaning or shifting our relationship to meaning. But one of the things that we can do is actually look backward rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. Because as I mentioned, this story that we've been telling about the meaning of the cross has only been popular the last couple hundred years. And in fact, there is a lot to say about the cross. There are many theories about the cross, and there's another one, a much more ancient one, the oldest one we know of, so much so that at the time of writing the, the penal substitutionary theory, this next theory I'm going to tell you about was called the classic theory. The one, the first one, it was called the ransom theory, and it is now often called Christus Victor. Now, this theory, the ransom theory of atonement, this different story we tell about how the cross reconciles us to God, it was dominant for a thousand years. In the whole history of Jesus' teachings being spread around the world, the most common story was the one I'm about to tell you. It is the story that is described as victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage, sin, death, and the devil. Now in the other story I told you today, who is the villain? Who is the villain in the punishment story? Are we? Or is it God? We are told that we are the villains because we have broken the rules, but who was the one with all the power? Who was the one that demands violence? Who was the one that could put a stop to this at any moment? In the other story, the villain is God. In the other story, the adversary is God, and that to me is one of the biggest red flags that we have gotten something entirely wrong. 
in our culture which, worship, which worships domination, in our empire which turns everything on its head. Jesus said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that should give us a tip-off that any time the empire gets to write a story, they put the villain in the place of the hero. They call the hero God, but then they say that it is God who demands vengeance and violence and compliance. And that actually you should feel bad about it. So in this other story, this more ancient story, this story that had been told for a thousand years before the next one took hold, the villain is the devil. The villain in the ancient story is the devil. Now in our culture, again, we have shifted to a place where we don't like to talk about the devil. We're not down with the devil here. That feels very, ooh, right? Now, part of that is because some pockets of our culture are a little too down to talk about the devil. <laughs> and I know that a lot of you know what I'm talking about. That there are pockets of our culture where the devil is used to frighten children into compliance. The devil is used to make you tremble in your boots. The devil is used for obedience, and we're right back at that other story. But in many cultures, most cultures around the world, and most of the cultures that would eventually get whitewashed into being modern American culture, the devil is talked about in very real terms. So who is the devil, the villain of our story? We tend to think of the devil, Satan, in our culture as, you know, like a white dude with a goatee and like a little trident situation, right? In fact, in the scriptures, the devil isn't even one person, one figure. The devil doesn't really exist as such, and the mythology that we have around who the devil is, the fallen angel, all of that is outside of the scriptures as we have canonized it. And in fact, the thing most referenced, Satan, the Satan, literally just means the adversary. So who is the villain of this story? The villain is the villain of this story. And we don't need to get more specific than that because any of us who have lived a life on this planet knows that adversarial experience. The devil is not just one figure with a pitchfork. The devil is the forces of evil. The devil is systems of oppression. The devil is anti-black racism. The devil is genocide. The devil is capitalism at its most extractive. The devil is misogyny and ableism. The devil is racism in all its forms. The devil is white supremacy culture. The devil is what comes to crush you over and over again. This is the adversary you've met, right? The villain the adversary, the one that threatens us with death at every turn. But it is not just in our systems of oppression. It is not just in our hierarchies outside of us. It is internalized self-hatred. It is internalized oppression. It is every destructive impulse we have. It is the tension that exists between us and the world that is trying to pull itself back together and yet is coming apart at the seams. We talk here about sin 
as being the tears in the fabric of the universe. If creation, the cosmos, all things are meant to be at one with God, then sin is anything that tears us from ourselves, from one another, and from God. We call this evil, and today we call it the devil. In the most ancient mythology of the cross, it is fundamentally a story about Jesus squaring off with all of these forces, squaring off with everything that threatens to tear us to pieces, coming out victorious and reuniting all things, making it possible for all things to be at one. It is not God that is holding humanity captive anymore. It is the devil. It is evil that demands more and more. Evil that says this is never enough. Evil by which we feel utterly trapped. How many of you living your life have looked around at the world and said, we can never get out from under this. We will never be free. How many of you sitting in therapy have looked at yourself and said, I will never get out of this. I will never be free. Looked at your relationships, longed for connection and felt all is lost. These forces are so overwhelming. And so we give them a name. They are the adversary. Every force that threatens to keep you from love is the devil. And we are utterly trapped by it. We feel bound, incarcerated, banished by the devil. And so in this story, in this ancient story, God says to the devil, what if I pay you a ransom? I'll buy them back from you. Give me all humanity. And the devil's like, what could you possibly give me that would be tastier than devouring all of creation? And God says, me. You can have me. And the devil's like, yeah, okay, fine. Take your puny creation. I want you. I will tear you apart. I will tear apart the connection, the love that binds creation from the very source. Give me Jesus. I will take Jesus. So God says, I will give you my own self. I will give you Jesus. The devil says, let me tear him apart. I will tear apart the universe from the seams. And so Jesus comes in to this messy, frayed fabric of creation. And the whole time he's here, the devil is throwing everything at him. Personal temptations. Experiences of oppression. The domination of empire and occupation. And all throughout, Jesus does what Jesus does. He heals, he connects, he teaches, he loves. He creates at one minute. He builds community. He reconciles people to one another, to their bodies and to God. And so the devil turns up the heat. But Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus knew this was coming. He was trying to tell his followers this whole time, it's going to get ugly. It's going to feel really bleak. And it does. Because when Jesus finally confronts empire in that last week, Jesus and all of the connection that he's built, all the people who love him, who feel loved by him, one of the days in that last week is characterized primarily by a woman pouring ointment, oil on his feet, 
precious perfume in an act of intimacy and love. This is what happens when God breaks into the world. Connection and love, restoration of hope. And so Jesus goes right into the heart of the devil's stronghold, the empire, the Roman Empire's occupation of Jerusalem. He squares off with the devil, and the devil comes for him at every level again. Systemic evil, the violence of religious authorities, the military powers. He com- the devil comes at Jesus interpersonally, the betrayal of friends, the dissipating of all that connection that had been there a moment ago. The devil comes for him physically, torturing him, torturing the very body he occupies. And the devil comes for him spiritually as Jesus is on the cross and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The devil is coming to tear Jesus apart. And finally, death delivers that last blow in death itself. And on Friday afternoon of that last week, it looks like the devil has won. Humanity has been freed, but what is the point? The whole point of freedom and liberation is to be at one, healed to one another. And what is the point if Jesus, if God's love itself has been separated from us forever? But just as the devil is leaning back with satisfaction, evil feeling like it has won and the cosmos are rendered completely, completely torn apart. Jesus rises from the dead, new life, triumphant, because nothing, not empire, not pain, not betrayal, not rejection, not torture, not death can separate us from the love of God. And this is where the devil didn't know what he was getting into. This is where the beauty of our God is that our God is a trickster. The beauty of our God is that God knows that evil is stupid, that it cannot win. The beauty of our God is that our God is so confident in God's love for us that God knows even when we forget, we are the people that forget, God remembers that God's love will overcome all evil. That our finite selves... When we look around and we say, I cannot, I simply cannot, I will not go on, God says, you don't have to because I did, I do, and I will. My love is infinite. My unrelenting love will always defeat evil. This is the story of Easter. This is our story of Easter, of the cross where we are made one with God again and again and again. And this is the beauty of stories. They do not disappear at the end. They can be read and told over and over again. Because our story is just a snapshot, a present moment understanding of the divine, of the eternity, of the infinite. God is confronting the cross. God is confronting the devil. God is confronting the pain and loneliness and isolation and hopelessness in us, in our world, every moment of every day of all eternity. And every moment and every day of all eternity, Jesus is rising again, laughing at the devil and saying, not today, not today, never. Never again will you believe, actually, that you can win, that death has the final say. 
because nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Our hope may be fragile. Our love may be finite. But God's love is infinite in power and persistence. It rises and rises and rises again. And in telling this story, we remember from the beginning to the end, that loop over and over again, the truth, the truth of God's love for us, that nothing, nothing can defeat it. And as a bonus, while the devil was looking away, self-satisfied, crossing his arms on Saturday, Jesus was storming the gates of hell. And this is part of the story I love so much. It has been lost in our Western tradition, but Eastern Christianity holds it very dear, the harrowing of hell. Because it is not just in this present moment, but in every moment throughout eternity that Jesus breaks down the gates of imprisonment, the gates of hell, the gates of captivity, and says, evil cannot bind you. I free you forever and forever and forever. Welcome home. And so Easter, it's a homecoming. It is a reunion. Easter is that moment that we remember that we are and will be forever reunited with all of creation, made at one with God, with hope, and with love. So we don't need that other story anymore, do we? Because we have the most ancient story, the one that points us toward the truth. And we know that nothing can separate us from that truth, which is God's ever-persistent love. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, your victory over evil is our victory in hope and love and connection. May we celebrate with you. May we find joy in telling that story over and over. May we push back against that nothingness that eats away at the fabric of the universe. May we pull toward one another with the strength of your love. And when we don't have that strength, when the tears feel too big for us, when the wounds feel unhealable, God, may we remember that you are at work healing over and over again, that you are laughing in the face of evil that thinks it has won because you know the truth, God, that your love is victorious, that you will find us again, that you will heal us to one another that no one is beyond redemption or hope, and that someday we will feel that connection with all eternity. May we celebrate with you today and every day. Amen.